Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. first lesson of the Premier League season has been delivered at the Etihad, where the doldrums of last year's non-title race have been pushed aside by Manchester City's stellar start. Elsewhere, Arsenal bounced back, Manchester United plods on, while the story of the season's first two weeks may be... Leicester City? Well, welcome everybody to this edition of the World Soccer Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. It is indeed a blue world to start the Premier League season, and a foxy one at that with Claudio Ranieri and his Leicester Foxes, one of three teams with six points through two weekends of play. The others, a narcolepsy-inducing Manchester United and the most impressive team in the league thus far, Manchester City. Here to talk about that are my co-hosts, the effervescent Lawrence McKenna and what I'm sure is a celebratory Kartik Krishnire. Kartik, six days, six goals, six points for your citizens. Tell me what you were feeling as City claimed that 3-0 over Chelsea. And no goals conceded, most importantly, when you consider the big question mark coming into this season was City's defense. I watched preseason preview after preseason preview, whether it be ESPN FC or Sky Sports or uh, written publications saying Manchester City, maybe they've improved attacking-wise by bringing Raheem Sterling in. But defensively, they look a shell of their former self. Vincent Company, the captain, not at his former level. They didn't address their problems uh, at fullback. So Manchester City are going to get opened up and they're going to finish fourth at best. Well, it's early days. Uh, there are not many to look at, but the data points we have uh, point to something completely different happening. Lawrence, I think everybody was a little surprised by this weekend's result at the Etihad. Uh, most people... Uh, I can't even think of any major publication that wasn't picking Chelsea to win this game. And we're going to talk more about this, uh, not the game to finish first in the season, but we're going to talk about this game more in the second segment. I just want to know if your outlook on the Premier League cha- has changed at all today. Um, no, not really. I, I mean, I think it's still early on. Um, and I, I definitely think that there's um, an, an issue with, how people are reporting the Premier League early on in the season. like I, Because we were talking about last night, because there's no gap essentially between football now, it, it becomes much of a muchness. And I just wonder whether it's impacting the way that people are reporting it right now. And I think mm-hmm. for that reason, we like Chelsea almost need to take a break. Chelsea already need their, their winter break. Yeah, it does seem like Chelsea 
feeling the effects of that short preseason. Maybe this was something that Mourinho had planned for. We'll talk about that much more as we're going to devote most of the second segment of the show to the big game. Of oh, the weekend. And so, oh, if I could just say this, Richard, um, screw the sun. Uh, they really need to get some help. What happened with the sun? I mean, they ran, we're, we're here in the States. What they ran this morning. Oh, right. Did you guys not see this at all? Well, I don't get the sun. About, so. okay, no well, one I, I saw the story, but I never. I didn't click on it because the title was so despicable. Take us through it, Lawrence. Okay. Um, we, we all uh, know Eva Canero has been in the news this week, um, mm-hmm. and the sun ran this morning with pretty much a, a nothing story about her sex life. And... Um, I, I mean, it's just sh- it's shameful. It's not even journalism. It's basically smut. Um, at one point, uh, the the boyfriend. I mean, you know, you really don't want to talk about what he was saying, but the the boyfriend, the ex boyfriend, basically talks about being jilted by her. Uh, he what he's basically complaining about. What I would say sounds like a great relationship. He says he has sex on a daily basis, and I was like, okay, so complaining about that to a newspaper, nicely done. And then uh, he also goes on to say that she claims that she slept with the Chelsea player, but he doesn't believe that's true. So essentially, they're just dealing in, um, in in terrible rumors, and it's at this point we like I, I don't care about the reaction. You basically say, you know, this is a this it's a professional doctor. This is someone who needs to be respected within the game because in any other sport, doctors get so much more of a say than in football. And it, it's just it's become this bizarre pantomime that people are saying Mourinho is is engaging in. I think the biggest problem is the press are more than willing to engage in it. We did um, see- and the Suns take we did see a number of people very critical of Chelsea I thought in the outlets that I read it was pretty balanced highlighting the fact that Mourinho was out of line here but you still have the sensational element to this uh, and just the way that Eva Canero has come to fame is a little bit sensational and says the worst things about football fans and of course uh, the Sun putting a story like that on their cover pandering to those fans is probably a a despicable symptom of it. Um, I, yeah, I don't think we need to go deep into the sun, Kartik. I think we're good skipping this topic, although I I am <laughs> glad I know about this now. But let's talk about a different level of coverage, something that's a little bit more in our wheelhouse, because I wanted to talk about a couple of teams and the stark contrast between the expectations or the impressions we had of them after one week of the season and now after this weekend's results that about face. And I think the two teams that come to mind are West Ham losing at home this weekend after beating Arsenal at the Emirates last weekend, and then Everton, a 3-0 at St. Mary's. Uh, Tell me your thoughts on these two teams, two very different results for these teams. Yeah, first off, I think it's important to point out Leicester has won nine of their last 11 Premier Leagues. So uh, maybe they're over the course of two seasons with two different managers. So maybe they're actually a good team, something we can discuss later. And Leicester Leicester having beaten West Ham this weekend. What does that right, mean, so though? Like, that, what do we mean they're a good well, team? Does, does that mean well, we're talking well, about the actual playing stuff? Or? They're getting results. The point being, they've beaten a lot of teams away from home in this 11-game stretch going back to last season. So maybe we don't over-interpret uh, what West Ham faced. Now, West Ham had a very rough European run, which ended abruptly uh, last Thursday, uh, now about 10 days ago, as, uh, as we were talking now. And there were question marks going into that Arsenal game, serious question marks. A lot of people talking about uh, potentially the Hammers being a team that could be tipped for relegation in the post-Big Sam era. Then that result kind of skewed our thinking. Now we're back wondering where they are. I think it's going to be a while before we get this West Ham team, especially with uh, some of the transfers they might still make and with uh, Ender Valencia injured. Now to Everton, Richard, I... I, uh, I don't know what to make of this. Either this result is either a complete aberration or 
Southampton and Everton are dramatically different teams than they were last season. What do you think about that, and, Lawrence? Why should we should we be looking to last season to judge the current versions of Everton and Southampton? Well, that's what I'm. Uh, Everton and Southampton or Leicester and Southampton? Or any or Leicester, Le- and Everton and Southampton. Leicester to me is even a more striking case because they have a new manager, their squad has some major changes, and just inherent in the way that we're looking at this, there's this huge break. And in a lot of cases, these teams aren't the same. Everton looks somewhat the same as last year on the field so far. They, they've made some tweaks. They're obviously missing one prominent player, Baines. Another player that looks like he's going to be prominent, Kone, is coming back. But Leicester kind of looks like an entirely different team. So just as it concerns Everton and West Ham, how much should we be looking to last year as guidance as to how we should judge them this year? Well, I guess what we can look back at is, I think especially with Everton, maybe you can look back and say, you know what, Everton had some very impressive performances last season, which took the pressure off Martinez. And uh, that, you know, that, that was great for them um, because it, it basically said, look, somewhat of our philosophy is is working here. And again, it kind of works again this season. But the, the difference here is that uh, I mean, e- Everton essentially had two players who looked exceptional within this match and they've not always been able to enact that and that hasn't always been down to philosophy. And um, as much as it worked very well in this game, I don't know how well that's going to work against every side and how many points that's going to garner in the Premier League, how how much of a long-term plan that is. The difference we've got with uh, maybe Ranieri is that Ranieri seems to be uh, basically extolling the virtues of his own brand of football because he's, and I imagine the press are more drawing this, in such stark contrast to his his predecessor, um, and you know his predecessor was tough, but I mean Ranieri, I mean Ranieri's like a some sort of caring grandfather. Is is lovely. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll talk about being compared to your predecessor. Uh, Roberto Martinez has a silky style of football. He's very good in the media. He's done very well as a, as an analyst here in the United States when he's come over for summer tournaments here. But uh, he's now being judged against David Moyes, and the comparison is not pretty. Everton supporters have already lost patience to a large extent and we saw that with that uh that airplane that flew the the message to kent Wright and uh and really implicit uh, about the, the direction of the club and I, i've seen more and more dissatisfaction among everton supporters in the last week with martinez but than a, in the previous a plane is now part so, of the course though karting i mean a, a plane is now sort of right, it's, well, it's part of it. well that's, kind of the <laughs> that's the weird thing no but my, my point there's is no novelty martinez, martinez needs more results like this because i i, I think Kent Wright is going to be under the cosh if, if they finish 10th or 11th again this season. I, I actually, I disagree. I don't know how many results, I mean, it, it's obviously very impressive to be to be beating Southampton by such a margin, but it's also worth saying in this game that Southampton will probably feel they threw away quite a, quite a few chances. I, I, I wonder whether Everton actually want to see some wins where their team is challenged uh, or there's they're put under some sort of pressure or a goal is scored against them. And then what happens from there? Does the belief still stand out on the pitch? Because... That's- I think that's where Martinez may fall down. That's or, a very good point. Yeah, that's a very good point, Lawrence, because the goals we saw today, at least the key goals, were goals that were in transition that aren't exactly goals that we think are characteristic of Roberto Martinez's style of play. And it's really that style of play that is at the heart of those criticisms Kartik was talking about. But, gentlemen, we're going to talk about Everton, West Ham, and the rest of the league throughout the rest of the show. But first, let's get caught up on the weekend's results. On Friday, Adam Yanuzai's surprise start also produced the game's only goal at Villa Park. Manchester United is off to a perfect start after a pair of 1-0 victories with Fridays coming at the expense of Aston Villa. 
On Saturday, two goals from Romelu Lukaku gave Everton that 3-0 surprise win at Southampton. Sunderland is up to seven goals conceded in two games after their 3-1 loss at home to Norwich, while Swansea remains unbeaten after handling 10-man Newcastle 2-0 in Wales. Tottenham slipped at home and remains without a win through two weeks after a 2-2 come from behind come from a head draw with Stoke. Likewise, Watford and West Brom finish even after their 0-0 at Vicarage Road, while Leicester moves to six points with a 2-1 upset at Upton Park. Then on Sunday, Arsenal struck first beautifully through Olivier Giroud, but needed a Damian Delaney own goal to claim a 2-1 win in front of a supportive crowd at Selhurst Park. But in the big match of the weekend, it was 2013-14 champions Manchester City dealing with the holders, Chelsea, a 3-0 victory to search to the top of the league. The top of the table right now has City, Leicester, and United all on six points. Liverpool can join them with a win on Monday, while Everton and Swansea sit just behind them with four goals each. When we come back, we'll talk about that result at the Etihad in Manchester, where last year's top two finishers gave us an early indication of what it's going to take to claim this season's title. But first, a word from our sponsors. Two weeks of the season are in the can, and the Premier League is already living up to expectations. But to keep that excitement going, I want to invite you to check out Rabble.tv for a new type of TV experience. Rabble.tv is a place to listen to live match commentaries from real fans. While games are being played, and the way it works is simple. All you have to do is tune into your game, but press the mute button. Then head over to Rabble.tv to listen to soccer fans providing their own call. Or better yet, you can create your own broadcast. Call one of your team's games just by signing up for free and switching on your microphone. With Rabble, you can listen to a broadcast through your desktop, through your iOS app, or now through your mobile browser. So sign up today at Rabble.tv, where it's your team and it's your call. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Main focus here is going to be Manchester City versus Chelsea, that 3 0 win for the, for the citizens at the Etihad in Manchester. Goals from Sergio Aguero, Vincent Company, and that blast at the end from Fernandinho. Interesting here, the two big goal scoring threats for Manchester City, I think we would all acknowledge, are Sergio Aguero and Yaya Torre. They combined for 11 shots this game. Really telling of. Chelsea just unable to contain the main threats for Manchester City. So Kartik, I find it really interesting that Jose Mourinho, after this match, was really complimentary of his team play in the second half and really felt hard done by the 3-0 result. So my question to you is one that you can't answer, but maybe you can make up something. What game was he watching? Well, he certainly wasn't watching this game. And Mourinho's uh, mind games and delusions and, and diversionary tactics in the media it used to charm us. We used to think it was funny. Uh, media in England used to indulge them in it in, in a way that it, the Italian and Spanish press wouldn't. But now I think the gig has been up, is up, and it's been up for a while. I, I point to uh, his uh, his reaction to the uh, officiating and the result against Aston Villa in March of 2014 as the beginning of the end. And, and, and then uh, made similar comments in the game before uh, the uh, – the, the, the draw against uh, the loss to Sunderland and then the draw against Norwich that cost uh, Chelsea the title that seat, even though they had swept, uh, they had taken six points off of both Liverpool and Manchester City, the two clubs that finished immediately on top of them in the table that year. Then last season, Mourinho was behaving himself until a game against Southampton where uh, he claimed there was a campaign against Chelsea, a draw, remember, at St. Mary's. Uh, that was followed up by a, a, an absolute thumping they took on New Year's Day against Spurs, 
in, in which uh, uh, not only were they thumped and, and opened up in a way that we've never seen a Mourinho team opened up defensively, but that, that day coincided with Manchester City catching them atop the English table. Mourinho behaved himself the rest of the season, uh, uh, became very pragmatic, if you want to call it that, but more or less conservative in, 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 his, uh, in his play, uh, in his, the way he set up his team. And guess what? Uh, Chelsea ran away with the title. This season, he started early with the Rafa Benitez comments uh, and, and, and the, the comments that I, I think threw off Chelsea's preseason preparations. Uh, they didn't win a game in preseason. Then the Eva Canero thing that we've already talked about. And now, uh, which led directly into this week where they were they were killed by Manchester City. And then now these comments about how uh, uh, it was an unjust result. I, I, uh, I, I, the quote from the BBC is that uh, Mourinho called it a fake 3-0 victory. So, <laughs> um, again, delusion and uh, just not, not being grounded in reality. And I think this has, is having an impact on his team. And quite frankly, and, and, and if you in the United States, you watched uh, NBC Sports. I think I think Kyle Martino nailed it. Uh, year year three for Jose Mourinho, wherever he's been, uh, Inter. Uh, uh, well, Inter he didn't make he he wasn't in a year three, right? He never right. made a year three. Chelsea the first time, Real Madrid, mm-hmm. uh, and now Chelsea the second time. He starts to make these kinds of bizarre comments that end up to uh, just kind of culminating in him losing his job. So, are we there again? Maybe. Well, I think that's a very interesting theory because you mentioned Inter. He obviously won Champions League there, was very successful, only stayed two years. One of the other places he only stayed two years was Porto. Obviously very successful there, won Champions League. So maybe his reaction here is the lack of success relative to Champions League. That's where he all, what he always wants to accomplish everywhere he goes. Uh, but Lawrence, maybe this is a Bella Goodman type thing where... Jose Mourinho is just not a coach that you want sticking around to a third year. Third year at Chelsea was the first year in his first time around. First year he didn't win the title, only made it a little way into his fourth year. And then I guess it's kind of legendary how he broke the locker room at Real Madrid during his third year there. I did say on a podcast last week, I think, um, you either die a superhero or you live long enough to see yourself become Jose Mourinho. Mm-hmm. And that's that seems to be the problem for him is that at this point there's – you know, I mean, the, like Kartik says, the press were very charmed at one time. But essentially, when you're a tourist for quite a while and you go around making very what feel like very meaningful relationships with people, but those things unravel and you don't sustain them for long enough, then w- w- what end result is that? Because Chelsea were left reeling without him. Inter were left a mess. I mean, Rafa Benitez's wife has done some of the best football analysis we've seen in years. Um <laughs> Or even though, even though, I mean, you know, I, I, we did an interview with uh, Football Rambler a few years ago, and Jonathan Wilson was saying he's like Cleopatra. Um, you know, he gets these lovers, has them, and they're incredibly satisfied during that time. But then <laughs> afterwards, they're left incredibly unsatisfied because they don't. They ultimately realise that they don't have what they want for the long term. They only have it in the short term. Hmm. The question is, like, if that sets your club on the right path and it gives you a in inverted commas history, etc., then. Do you, you know? Do you go with that short-term risk and then hope that hope that another manager can pick up and build a, a more meaningful legacy or a different legacy or clean up in a different way, or do you go with Mourinho, get him to give you the shot in the arm that you think your club needs, and then you know uh, go downhill after that? Well, Lawrence, let me, the, let me play like know, a devil's advocate here, Lawrence. Let me let me play like a devil's advocate here, Lawrence, because you mentioned the Cleopatra analogy from Jonathan Wilson. You also um, had the superhero analogy, which I thought was very good, but it also made me think that this relationship might be relative, that we or the players or the clubs that employ him see Mourinho as a superhero, then come through year three, that 
changes, that perception changes. But is it possible that maybe Mourinho isn't the one that changes? It's just that people become bored and they become satisfied with that lover. And they want that lover to be everything when Mourinho has never been everything. He's just been very good at the things that he does. Well, he's, I mean, that's the point is maybe we're looking for, we're, we're analyzing from looking at a long-term plan and saying, you know, wow. Uh, I mean, that that's the difference between him and Wenger, isn't it? Is that mm-hmm. Wenger has, has got this longevity, um, even if the longevity doesn't, Win, win new titles in the in the very very long term, and so I guess that, that that's the problem there with your comments is that actually um, it, re- really that doesn't stand up to much of it doesn't hold much water in that sense because Mourinho uh, he builds these very short term relationships but they don't work it, mm-hmm. you know it, it sets you up, it sets you up to fail. Yeah. And are, maybe you're right. What you're saying is our analysis is wrong of that, right? Right. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's this is a deficiency in Jose Mourinho as a manager, and this is a deficiency in us that we're expecting somebody that seems to have a pretty attra- uh, established track record, but also has the personality traits consistent with that track record to be something he's not. Uh, but when but we is, talk- is that the problem? That the, the, what, what do you do then? What's he going to do when when he has to finish his career? Because he's going to have to finish his career at some point. Well, he and could, when he has to stop, then what? He could do the best a Goodman thing and just move on every one to two years, realizing that that's the best way for him to be successful. And we're seeing this a little bit with Louis Van Hall, where there's no talk of him really going beyond this year, because who would want to live in year three under Louis Van Hall, given what we know about him? He and Van Hall are very similar, and he picked up a lot of these traits from Van Hall. Don't kid yourself. I mean, the, Von Hall is the one guy he worked with, Sir yeah. Bobby Robson also, but that he speaks very, very highly of, and his style has emulated Von Hall's. To the point where uh, it, 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 it's now great theater for people who cover this league that they, you've got Mourinho and Von Hall in the same league uh, guiding maybe the two biggest brands in the league. But it, it's uh, I think it affects both teams' performances. I mean, we, we haven't talked about Manchester United yet in this show, but at, at some point I think Von Hall's uh, games – uh, affect United's performances as I believe they did last season at times. Yeah, this is a very well, interesting, interesting t- to look- topic and it, it's a nice contrast with Manuel Pellegrini too who has the opposite type of personality and maybe you have to accept some results like the last year with Manuel Pellegrini to have the long-term consistency and uh, and a f- a positivity right. around the club. But, w- but, but, but we- what about what about the fact that we I mean sorry to interrupt but what about the fact that we see uh, the, the places where uh, Robson is best remembered or you know mo- most fun they remembered are the clubs where he stuck around and that's newcastle uh he was at ipswich for a, a very long time and england yeah and apart from that he had very short-term relationships and that's what Mourinho learned there but again that puts a contrast between us ex- us thinking that this one type of coach is inherently better than this other type of coach that has this kind of short-termism built in but if you look at the actual accomplishments of the two managers i think there is more of a debate to be had but, there so- sorry to the cut you off yeah sorry to cut you off lawrence i think that's a, that's a good question yeah. what what accomplishments are you actually looking at are you looking at just yeah. trophies are you looking at relationships and legacy but let's actually every conversation of well, chelsea I, 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 the, the, the drama i'll just throw this i'll just wait, throw wait, this wait, in wait, real guys, quick no, wait, wait, wait. With every conversation regarding Mourinho ends up regarding Chelsea ends up delving into Mourinho and we end up running out of time to actually talk about what happens on the field so I want to take us to that now guys because yeah. Kartik there were a couple of very interesting things that Mourinho did tactically uh, inserting Ramirez at the expense of Oscar I want to start there I was not a fan of this move at all yeah it's it's one of those things that people who know me and have listened to the show for a long time know I tend to be very fatalistic about City. But when I saw the team sheet today for Chelsea, 
uh, the thought was, okay, we're either going to score in the first 20 minutes or we're going to open them up in the first 20 minutes because there was absolutely no intent to uh, attack. When you take Oscar out, you, you put Ramirez in, and, and you also um, seemingly are already playing a very kind of defensive lineup. Uh, William is favored uh, for his uh, – for his defensive work rate, although we didn't necessarily see it the previous week against, uh, well, we did see the work rate against Swansea. We just didn't see the defensive quality, but he had to right. cover for Ivanovich a lot, right? Yeah. So uh, this was an interesting move. I mean, I think the thing that I, I, I gather from it is Mourinho has this tendency to, anytime he's away from home, particularly early in the season, remember the game he right. played at Manchester United two seasons ago when he, he kind of sent David Moyes into a tailspin. Uh, Manchester United had looked very good in the first week of the season, winning at Swansea 4-1. He goes to, uh, to, to Old Trafford, just kind of mucks it up, gets a nil-nil in a game which Chelsea didn't even try and play. Uh, does the same thing to Wenger a couple of weeks later. And um, this has become a pattern where he thinks he can get away with it. This is the first time he did it to City that season and then got a counterattacking goal. He hasn't been caught out and found out when he's done this away from home against the top side. Oh, and then let's not forget the Liverpool game, right? That cost Liverpool the title. Uh, this is the first time he's been he's been caught out, and it was because. And I and I think maybe we can develop this topic a little more. I know Lawrence doesn't want to hear this, but I think <laughs> it has a lot to do with Manchester City signing Raheem Sterling. It well, completely changes the way you unlock a team yeah. that bunkers deep and is just trying to defend. I completely agree with yeah, that. No, you that's actually, that's you, actually what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'll I'll just add my two cents, Lawrence, and then let you go with this. The way that we saw the quick, skilled players of Manchester City, David Silva, Raheem Sterling, Sergio Aguero, uh, Navas providing the whistle so that Chelsea can't close in on those, Jose had to make that change at halftime to bring Zuma on for John Terry. It seems like Manchester City has built a team almost perfectly suited to dissect that Chelsea defense. Uh, yeah, and th- but but then also, I mean, we look at the different ways that they deployed their attacks, and uh, like you say, there was pace uh, for one side and a very raw pace and then we look at the, the way that Chelsea deployed theirs and I, I still think that they you know that Man City lineup is going to feel way more confident than the Chelsea one for me because I mean I know, I know on paper we look, we're going through these saying well is Sanya questionable is Carlo questionable but the bigger thing for me there is that that looked like a great defensive unit a great back five with Joe Hart in it mm-hmm. or a great back seven with Yaya Torre and Fernandinho. And Kartik, before we move on to talking about the other title contenders at the end of the segment, I want to touch on what Lawrence said there. There was the expectation by many that City would come into this season playing as poorly at the back as they did at the end of last year. And that seems reasonable based on our last impression of them. But based on the long-term history that we know about Vincent Kompany or the trend upwards in his career that we've seen from Mangala, it seemed like that's almost wishful thinking. It's just as we see a great school scorer and expect him to regress back towards his mean the next season, shouldn't we expect City's defense to improve, kind of regress back towards their mean? Yeah, I think we should. I, I, a lot of the reaction had to do with the, uh, the, the Real Madrid friendly in, uh, in Australia after Fabian Delft got hurt in that game. Uh, City, uh, the floodgates open, and Delft was playing immediately r- right in front of the back four. Hmm. Um, and then, and then the game at Stuttgart, the last friendly City played before the opener against West Brom, where uh, Stuttgart hit City for four goals in the first half. So that was, I think, a lot of it was a reaction, not just to the end of last season, uh, where uh, James Milner and Frank Lampard both started the f- last, the final six games of the season, and they're both gone. Uh, then. Uh, those two friendlies that I referred to. So there was a lot of overreaction to results in friendlies. Uh, quite frankly, 
uh, Pellegrini was playing a lot of youth players. He was experimenting a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted really to get uh, the, the, the key in those friendlies for him was to get Silva and Sterling on the same page because those are the two key guys in this team going forward. Aguero is a goal scorer, right? We know that. But Sterling and Silva are the two, the two key guys yeah. uh, in, in, in formulating your attack. And that chemistry was built in those same friendlies where Manchester City was conceding four goals uh, because they both played uh, uh, basically the full 90 in those two games and, and, and developed it. Uh, final point on the back line, Alexander Kolarov is, is playing ahead of uh, Gael Clichy this season. And you're seeing Kolarov, who had a very poor season last year, really benefit from Sterling's signing. Sterling is mm-hmm. is, is, is got the pace. He's p- pulling inside. He's pulling defenders inside. Um and Kolarov's overlapping runs are now more dangerous, and they've already developed a connection. And Kolarov, who is uh, kind of a wing-back type, right? he's not really a guy you want as a, a left-back necessarily in the back four typically, but he's a guy that Pellegrini likes because he can play the way Pellegrini wants his, uh, his fullbacks to play. He's really benefiting from Sterling, and he defensively he's been fine. And going forward, he's been amazing in these first few games. Yeah, some very nice passing today from Kolarava. Some nice passes straight into the box for Aguero. Led to a really nice chance that Begovic stopped in the first half. That happened four or five times where Begovic stopped Aguero before he finally broke through just before halftime. Uh, gentlemen, before we close out this segment, I want to go to each of you. Talk about the other two main title contenders. Uh, what we saw this weekend, a pair of one-goal victories. Lawrence, let's start with you. Let's talk about Arsenal at Crystal Palace. Scored the opening goal, led Crystal Palace back in it. Got... I don't want to say they were fortunate. They were fortunate to get their winner, but it was an own goal at the end. What are your impressions of Arsenal after their two-one victory at Selhurst Park? Uh, the impressions would be that they're still uh, looking at what, what their striking options are. Giroud historically has done very well against Crystal Palace, um, and actually he did lead the line better than I thought he would today. Although mm. uh, actually that's unfair. I thought he leads the line as well as I expect him to. I still think there are people with higher expectations of what they expect an Arsenal striker to do when they lead the line. Yeah. Um, and I think that slightly lets him down. I guess the, the thing is, it's, it's, not if, it's not as if Palace didn't threaten themselves. And there are times where you just think it, it's those fine margins that... I know Liverpool had a previous season not long ago where, where you know, they had those fine margins and got away with it. I'm just wondering, is this going to be the same season for Arsenal now? And we saw again today Petrshek allowing a goal. Maybe it wasn't as bad as last week's goal, but some people are going to look at that Joel Ward strike from beyond the box that was just rolled across the ground toward the far corner and wonder what Arsenal actually has in Petrshek. Kartik, the other team from Manchester. <laughs> Notice what I did there with that wording. Uh, Manchester United, another <laughs> another 1-0 victory. Another very boring performance, but I guess you can't argue with the results so far? No, you can't argue with the results. Just a quick word on Petr Cech, if, I, if you don't mind, Richard. I think part of the reason we, we love Petr Cech is his distribution from, uh, from the back. He's a better distributor as a keeper than just about anyone in England. Uh, the, the, the issue of his shot stopping and reading crosses and reading the game in front of him has been there for a number of years, by the way. So uh, let's not forget that. And, and maybe he just wasn't as great a signing as, as uh, we were led to believe. As far as Manchester United, they keep getting results. Uh, Yanusai got the surprise start. That was uh, that was a little bit stunning. Uh, the thought was <laughs> that that Von yeah that, that Von Hall was sending him out on loan a little bit apparently stunning. to Sunderland. Uh, Sunderland could really use they could use anyone at this point. But uh, he gets the start. He gets the goal. Uh, he goes uh, uh, puts in a good shift for them. Uh, United is still lacking something up front. Wayne Rooney now playing as a striker seems very isolated from the rest of the attack. Memphis is kind of hit or miss, even though he helped create that goal for Giannisai. I um, there's, there's a lot of work to be done. 
uh, but they've got two two games, two wins. Uh, this win at Villa was impressive in the sense that they got the full three points, even though Villa showed at, at points in this game to be better uh, than United were. So uh, I guess job well way. done for Louis van Hollen. Yeah, I guess job well done for Louis van Hollen. They're not they, they haven't dropped a point yet, even though they have not looked good, and Wayne Rooney does not look comfortable. Uh, as a striker again, I think again to get Rooney involved in the game, you're going to have to you're going to ha- let him d- drift deeper, and you're going to have to have a pure out and out striker. Chicharito Hernandez is still still there. Obviously, Von Hall doesn't like him. So does that mean they sign someone in the next two weeks? I don't know. More at questions and answer for Manchester United thus far, but six points through two matches means they're one of three teams at the top of the table right now. One team that could join that trio, Liverpool, plays on Monday. They face Bournemouth. When we come back next segment, we're going to talk about the three newly promoted teams and catch up on the segment that we actually lost last week. Look at which of these teams are going to have the biggest impact this season. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Third segment, the one we lost last week and you did not get to hear our players of the week. Last week it was for Lawrence Yoankabai, for me, John Joe Shelby, and for Kartik Graziano Pele. Let's go through that order again, but with this week, Lawrence, who was your second weekend's player of the week, but really favorite player to watch this week? Can I say Graziano Pele? I know that sounds weird. When you strike it, when you lose 3-0 and your striker doesn't score any goals, um, it's a strange one, but I, I really don't feel like uh, it's, it's his fault that the goals went in. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's part of me that still thinks I still enjoyed a silky play even when they were down to Everton. I love I love someone who they'll still stick to their style of football even when they're down. Uh, and you know it's not about getting more. It, you know it's not about the old adage of you know getting more gritty, getting stuck in. No, remain the same way. Go with the back heels. Go with all the beautiful things that you already know. And I I think that intimidates in a different way. And I think if anyone can stick with that, then I'll respect it. That's why I'm saying Graziano Pelle this week. Yeah, we used this stat during the dead segment last week, but Graziano Pelle led the league last year with 71 shots that didn't hit target. But there is a skill to just getting in position to get shots off. So if a few more of those actually find target, uh, find the goal this year, uh, some of that regression we're expecting from Southampton might be put off. Uh, My turn. Uh, Another goal scorer, I'm going with Romelu Lukaku for obvious reasons. If people saw the two goals that he scored in the first half for Everton this weekend, they know exactly why he's a player of the week candidate. The first one bending backwards off of that cross from Maruno Kone to head in the initial goal on the counter. And then that first touch, left-footed finish, staying a step ahead of Vincent Wanyama, giving giving Everton a 2-0 lead at St. Mary's. Eventually, they win 3-0. One of the best games we've seen Lukaku play. That's He's my player of the week. Kartik, how about you? Well, I, I, since both Lawrence and I have picked Graziano Pella in the first two weeks of the season, I think it's a sure bet, Richard, you're, you're going to have him next week. Uh, he seems to be our favorite player on this show uh, early in the season. I'm going with Nathan Redmond from, uh, from Norwich. Uh, Redmond, we talked a lot about Raheem Sterling these first two weeks. Redmond is developing the same sort of game as Sterling, albeit a couple of years behind him. Uh, as a young English talent. Uh, Unfortunately, he hasn't played for Liverpool and Manchester City. He's played for Birmingham City and Norwich, so uh, maybe not developed as quickly, not been in the eye, public eye as much. But uh, he he had a spectacular game on on Saturday as Norwich just opened up Sunderland. Uh, Maisie runs from from, from wide areas. He can stay wide. He can provide service. He scored the third goal in the game. And uh, we've seen this continued development from him uh, at Birmingham under Chris Hutton. Chris Hutton then brought him to Norwich. He was one of the few good players the season they went down. Got even better last season when they went down to the championship and now looks a, a prem keeper uh, to the point where I think he'll be in England regular pretty soon. And 
probably won't be at Norwich City much longer. Yeah, he was one of the main reasons that Norwich fans are optimistic about their chances of staying up this year. The maturity, the progression, a couple other players from the Canary squad you can throw in that same boat. Uh, but Norwich this weekend was at Sunderland. Uh, we're going to talk about that game now. We're going to talk about the rest of the promoted teams. Just take a moment to evaluate what we think these teams' chances are and what we've seen from them through the first two weekends of the season. Kartik, let's go ahead and start with you, but I don't think we can talk about Sunderland-Norwich without talking a little bit about how poor Sunderland has been so far. As good as City has been at the top of the table, six goals, none conceded, perfect record, Sunderland has been the city of the bottom of the table so far. Yeah, and Richard, we see this every season. So what happens is uh, they sack Martin O'Neill, they bring in... Uh, Paulo, Paulo Di Canio, he keeps them up. They probably go down if O'Neill stays. They start the next season terribly. He gets sacked. Uh, Gus Poyet comes in. Poyet keeps them up. Uh, they, 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 they miraculously have one of the greatest escapes of all time when you consider who they played in that stretch of games at the end of the 13-14 season. But then the next season they, under Poyet, they start uh, terribly. They're in relegation trouble. He eventually gets sacked and uh, and. and, and Dick Advocat, this legendary coach, who's won Europe with uh, with Zenit, who, who who did great a great job at PSV. He's coached a number of national teams and coached them well. He's uh, ending his career at Sunderland. He miraculously, not not really miraculously, but he keeps them up. Not nothing like uh, the way Poyet kept them up or Decania, but he keeps them up last season and uh, emotionally decides to to stay in spite of his wife's advice, in spite of common sense. And these first two matches, they have been far and away the worst team in the Premier League. Absolutely torn apart by Leicester in a game they should have uh, they should have been beaten worse than four two. And then this game against Norwich, uh, again embarrassed. Uh, they don't have uh, enough players, good enough players, uh, to stay up in this league. They've got a team full of castoffs from other Premier League sides, and uh, they're going to need to make some moves in the next two weeks uh, or. Uh, in January, or they're not going to stay up. Lawrence Kartik just outlined the pattern, so let me ask you this question. Is it better for your club to stick with that pattern, continuously flirting with relegation, these bad starts, and that pattern tells us not to write off the Black Cats too soon, or is it better to go back down a level, spend a couple years consolidating, and then be stronger when you come back up? Well, it depends on on your club and your system, though, doesn't it? I mean, there are some people who... Um, will will choose to run their club in such a financial way, um, and and then I think there are other people who will say, and I think it's it's totally about the culture at the football club as well, and how those people are cultivating that culture. I think in England there's there's somewhat of a narrative of we will go down, we'll do this, we'll do this, then we'll come back up. But I, how well is that? How many clubs has that worked for? Would be my question. Well, I think the arch rivals of Sunderland it worked for. Newcastle were in pretty bad shape when they were relegated under Alan Shearer, and not that they've been perfect since they came back up, but that it did give them a, uh, a season to reset, so to speak. But like you said, it, maybe that narrative is more narrative than actual fact. Kartik, you could look across the field from Sunderland on Saturday and see a team that maybe being bounced down for a year did help. Norwich City, like we said moments ago, does seem stronger this year under Alex Neagle than they were when they left the Premier League two years ago. Norwich's um, resurgence came this season. They fell to the third flight. The first time they'd ever been relegated, uh, they played outside the top two divisions in English football. That was the 09-10 season, I, I think. And uh, they, they got beat badly by Colchester, a local rival, in their first game. What did they do? They turned around, they hired Colchester's manager, Paul Lambert, cleared the wage bill, brought in a whole new set of players, many of which are still with the club today. 
uh, like Wes Houlihan, who had a good game on Saturday against uh, Sunderland. Mm-hmm. And they cleared the decks, were promoted, then promoted again the next season, stayed in the division for three years, got relegated. But we, we, we felt like Norwich would come back up, didn't we? Because they're a well-run club under, uh, under Delia Smith. She's done a good job keeping the finances together. And they were, because they're a well-run club financially, they were able to keep the, the core of that team, with the exception of, of Rob Snodgrass, uh, together uh, that season in the championship. They come back up, and I think now we think that they're going to stay, and they have, they have that core, and they haven't had a financial implosion. Sunderland is the opposite. If Sunderland goes down, they're in huge trouble. Sunderland has one of the top ten wage bills in the league. Let's not forget, and they keep finishing 16th or 17th every season. So that's that's a big problem. Lawrence, let's talk about a team that has a drastically different model to where the word core is somewhat of an oxymoron. Yet Watford has been was the strongest team in the championship for some time. They've come up. They've gotten two results. Uh, unfortunately, they only have two points at this point. But after a nil-nil against West Brom this weekend, they still haven't lost since being promoted. What's your feeling about uh, Kike Sanchez-Flores' club? Do they look like a team that is going to survive, albeit only after two weekends? Uh, g- good question. Um, I guess that's part of it, isn't it? Is When we're looking at judging a club that's just come up, and especially a club who may have the power to completely change things midway through the season, uh, and you know, we definitely know that they don't sort of feel averse to changing a lot of things all at once. <laughs> and it becomes hard hard to judge a long term. Uh, two draws in a row is, I mean, that's two points closer to 40, right? But I, I don't know how much longer he can go on with that. Um, I think the next few games, fairly critical in the fact that they're, they're at home to Southampton, who are obviously uh, uh, just had a difficult result against Everton. Um, and then I'm wondering what someone like Watford does in, say, the Capital One Cup this season, hmm. um, which is actually that I, I was looking through all the promoted teams and who they have. And then they go away to Man City and then they play Swansea, they play Newcastle. So I think there's there's three games here where we're going to see how he chooses to manage those. And then after that, they've got some very manageable games. I think that's part of it is how he manages the the fixture load this season because his, his players are going to get much tighter, much quicker. Uh, in the Premier League than they were in the Championship. And Karchik, first weekend of the season, Watford, very impressive at Goodison, getting that 2-2 result. And then Everton goes on the road this weekend to the South Coast, gets a 3-0 result over Southampton. Doesn't that make Watford look that much more impressive, make us reevaluate <laughs> them a little bit more in light of what we saw Everton do? Well, I don't know if we can look at, we, we, we can do that. But uh, Kiki Flores managing in England is interesting because uh, he, he was a very good manager at Atleti. I felt obviously upstaged now by, by the accomplishments of Simeone, and rightfully so. Simeone is as good a manager as you'll find in the game right now, in my opinion. Some people will disagree because they don't like the style of play of, of that club. But, um, I thought it was an interesting hire for Watford because he's a really good manager, but he's never managed in England before. And they've got so many new players. And they've got, obviously, uh, the the, the pipeline with with Granada and and Udinese, where they can always replenish players. But um, I I think I've liked what I've seen from them because they still have uh, players that contributed to them in the championship, like Anya, like like, uh, uh, Vidra that are on the side. And then they've got a number of guys they brought in from the continent who already seem to be um, getting comfortable in the Premier League pretty quickly, which doesn't always happen. When Sunderland has done it in the past, I hate to keep coming back to Sunderland, guys. Sunderland <laughs> no, you has don't. gone and bought guys. <laughs> <laughs> Sunderland has got, every summer has gone and bought guys from the continent. Uh, even though you don't think of Sunderland as a cosmopolitan place, they've been a pretty cosmopolitan club for a while now. Started with Steve Bruce buying guys, and every summer those guys, three, four, five of them don't pan out. 
And uh, we're seeing it again this summer with Advocat's buys. Uh, but Kiki Flores' buys or, or, or the, the Ponzo family buys have, have seemingly acclimated pretty well to this league at least through two weeks. Yeah, it's not every uh, it's not every promoted team that has a double pivot of Etienne Capu and Valen Barami there. So that's not too bad as a start, at least as a... It's a strange one, isn't it? They, they, they've, they've basically, they've said, right, you guys now get... Now you've, now you've achieved a certain level. Now mm-hmm. you get even more. Which is, I mean, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? The way they can do that, just move those players in that way. I, I wouldn't right, want right. They're not, a, they're not a feeder club for Udinese, as, as we had all feared. No. That's, that's the important thing. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want every club to be operated this way, but I think it is kind of interesting that one club in uh, those three leagues is operated this way. I think, I think it's kind of fun, but we'll see. Maybe there's some externality that will surface from this. Um, one more promoted club that we haven't talked about because they didn't play this weekend, Bournemouth. Bournemouth, that 1-0 loss at home to Aston Villa last weekend. They are going to Liverpool on Monday, Lawrence. Let's start with Bournemouth, then I want to talk about Liverpool for a little bit. It seems like a bad matchup for them on Monday. They're going kind of style versus style, strength versus strength with Liverpool, kind of trying to breed a Rodgers team at their own game. But then again, maybe some people would argue that that is the way that you would beat a Liverpool team that hasn't always looked so sure in defense. Well, I guess it's also part of the problem for Liverpool that they, it's not that they struggle against these kind of teams, but it's that uh, how how are they supposed to go away and play these guys? In recent, you know, there, there was one point where you would have thought, you know what, Liverpool could go away and thrash them. But I don't know. They're not playing that same kind of football now. Yeah. Um, and it's it's mentally where Liverpool will will obviously play this battle out. And I think there's there's quite a big problem there for Liverpool and Brendan Rodgers that the, the unpredictability goes for and against them. Um, you know, people are saying, hey, are we going to put Joe Gomez? Are we going to put um, M- M- Moreno at left back? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are we going to are we going to play a three uh, just behind the striker? Are we going to play two up front? And what I'm wondering is whether Rogers knows his best side and how he's going to beat teams like this this season. It still feels very much like a testing ground for Liverpool. And that's why you couldn't say you can put any sort of consistent money on this side to, to win on any consistent basis at the moment. They have to put a string of results together. And the first weekend um, against uh, against Stoke, they didn't seem all that impressive. But then you look at the way that Bournemouth played last weekend and you say, well, you know what? Aston Villa did what was right there, but they've got a very different mentality, a very different structure of side, and a manager who name who is able to name things in a very different way. Mm-hmm. So it's how they approach this game. Um, and, and you know, I think Bournemouth were left very frustrated after the first weekend, losing one nil um, at home to a second half goal, which for them they will feel they defended and defended and defended, and actually created something that. Uh, basically, they'll, they'll have felt unlucky in the first weekend. Yeah, but it was and a I huge reality check, too. Head that they want to get something. Yeah, it was a huge yeah, reality a huge, check, too. We, we, say, uh, yes, we say that, but you well, know, I mean, 1-0 against Aston Villa. Yeah, but it just shows you, you can control most of the game, feel like you played better, but there are players the quality of somebody who was in the second tier last year, Rudy Gastet, that teams can just bring off the bench and get that victory. You actually have to... You There's, there's a thinner margin for error, obviously, against... Be, be, bigger and better teams so maybe that was the reality check that even the Aston Villas that have been scraping by in the Premier League for so long are capable of beating you at your home ground Uh, Kartik I want to move to you because every time we talk about Eddie Howe's team we get into this stylistic discussion about the way that they play and they led they led the uh, championship last year in goals and shots and shots on target and passes and passing percentage and oh they're so beautiful I, I still don't feel like I really know enough about Bournemouth to say whether given the players that they have that will actually translate to the Premier League? And if it does translate, if it's going to be successful? 
I don't know if I'm the right person to ask this because I've written articles uh, in the last uh, uh, 18 months for multiple publications, which could be interpreted as uh, love letters to Eddie Howe. <laughs> because I love the way Bournemouth plays. Well, now I'm really uh, interested. How, ex- yeah, how explicit no, love, is this? Does, do you have your own Tumblr for this? Right, and and, and, and I've, I've written even in one of the recent articles uh, – that uh, that England is they're mad if they hire another manager. If they want an English manager after Hodgson's done, or after they sack Hodgson, whatever comes first, uh, they, uh, they this is the guy they have to hire. There's no one else on that list. But again, it's a style of football that doesn't necessarily match the the England ethos, right? That that's the first part right. uh, when we talk about the England national team. Uh, but it's also a style of football where I guess you have to have a set of players that buy into that and stay with you for a long time and can play that way and can play that way together. Does that translate to the Premier League? That's a very good question because we saw Burnley try and do it under Owen Coyle and it didn't work, right? And then we saw Coyle trying to implement it with other with, with players at, at um, Bolton that he inherited and it worked because he had Jack Wilshire on loan. And once he lost Jack Wilshire, once he went back to, uh, to, to Arsenal, it didn't work. Um, with second-tier players third-tier players, in some cases with Bournemouth, doesn't work in the Premier League. I'm not sure, although they made two very kind of interesting uh, signings in, in, in Tomlin uh, from Barrow, who, of course, has been in the second tier, but has played very, very well uh, for, for uh, Caracas' team. And then in Max Gradle, who was a player that Jose Mourinho even said could come to Chelsea. I'm not sure if that was just uh, <laughs> Yeah, why are we, trust, why are we from... trusting Jose Mourinho's words now? Uh, Karthik, right. <laughs> Karthik, the team I think about is in Holloway's Blackpool. And not only because of the yeah, style similar, and the similar. fawning over the style of play, but the actual size of the club, too. And over the course yeah. of the season, even though Blackpool had some good players like Charlie Adams and James Punchin on the team, and they got off to a great start, still ultimately were not successful. And so I just wonder if these narratives, all these positive things, if, if they're great, if they're great to talk about, but if they actually mean anything at they the mean, end. Yeah. yeah. I, that's a very good point. I mean, I forgot about Blackpool. And yeah, Ian Holloway was playing the same way with Blackpool, and I mentioned Owen Coyle at Burnley, and they got relegated, and then he went to Bolton. They got relegated. And uh, Bournemouth, uh, maybe the same thing. Maybe they get relegated. It seems, though, the bottom of the Premier League, at least in our mind, guys, is really weak. So so our interpretation is that, that Leicester was going to be weak coming into the season. Uh, yep. We'll see about that. Yeah. Sunderland, uh, yep. we, we, think, we think is weak. We think Newcastle is weak. So w- there's been this narrative, I think, that Bournemouth would finish 17th just because we want them to stay up. We like the way they play football, and we're hoping that teams that we're getting tired of, like Sunderland and Newcastle, go down. But whether that's a real, uh, that's really applicable remains to be seen. Well, I'll ask each of you this, and I'll start. Which of these three newly promoted teams actually stay up? I like Norwich and Watford, based on what I've seen and based on the players they have to actually stay up. I think Bournemouth right now is going to go down. I would put my chips on Sunderland and Villa as the two teams that join them. Lawrence, how about you? Uh, I, I'm going to say I, I actually agree quite a lot with what you're saying. I would say that the one that has the best chance, I'll say Watford right now. Just because I, I think they could make a big change midway through the season and push on from. And how about you, Kartik? Which of these three newly promoted teams actually stay up? It's really actually hard to see Norwich going down because uh, they shouldn't have gone down the year they went down, and they've stayed up with this set of players. So um, I guess Bournemouth is the most likely to go down, even though 
most of us have, have, have said they're going to stay up just because we want them to. But I guess they're the most just like likely to, stay, to, to go down. And uh, Norwich is the most likely to stay up. And Watford remains to be seen. And we are now down to our last segment of the show, everybody. We're going to take this break right now. When we come back, we'll catch you up briefly on what else is going on in Europe. We'll list our top four teams in the league right now. And then we'll cover the games we haven't before transitioning into the preview of next weekend's games. Stay with us. It's the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Last segment, World Soccer Talk podcast. We have another league that's active, and it's a league that's being covered by a major broadcaster in this country this year. Not to say that Gold TV isn't major, but it's not major. Fox now is covering the <laughs> Bundesliga Kartik. Um, and I don't know. I had a very mixed feeling about their actual product for this weekend. Yeah, first off, thank you to Fox. It's great to have a second uh, major European league on major television in the United States. The Premier League, now the Bundesliga Uh Unfortunately, they didn't cover it properly. They did well on Friday. Studio Ian Joy, who I love and am a big fan of, uh, and he does a great job. Uh, he's done a great job covering other leagues in the past. Uh, but no studio Saturday, no studio Sunday, no analysis then of, of, of Dortmund's play, no analysis of Wolfsburg's play today. And uh, it's just very Fox, unfortunately, Richard. But I, I guess we're glad to have the games on. And we're glad to have the German League back. The German League started this weekend with Bayern, as it should, Friday in Munich, a 5 to nil victory over visiting Hamburg. Borussia Dortmund, though, may have had the most impressive result of the weekend, posting a 4 nil win over Champions League round Borussia Mönchengladbach. Other winners to note in the first weekend of the Bundesliga, Wolfsburg, Bayer Leverkusen, Schalke, and newly promoted Ingolstadt, that won one nil at Mainz. The other major league that's active right now, other than England and Germany, is France. In their second weekend of the season, their marquee game took place on Friday between Monaco and Lille, and playing into League 1 stereotypes, it ended nil-nil. Unfortunately for League 1, that stereotype thrived this weekend. Four other games on Saturday finished scoreless, while PSG on Sunday won again 2-0, moving to six points with a win over Ajaccio, the Gazelic version of Ajaccio. Um, so, yes. so PSG at the top of that league, Bayern quickly at the top of the Bundesliga. Now let's give, um, let's give everybody our impressions of who we think are the class of the Premier League so far. We're going to do this every uh, show, just as we did last week. I'll go ahead and start my top four now and the top four that I think are going to be there at the end, of the end of the season. I think Manchester City is clearly the class of the league so far. The results speak for themselves, but the second best team doesn't have a perfect record. I put Swansea there. Uh, 2-0 win the this weekend, the draw at Stamford Bridge, very impressed by them. Leicester, they've earned a spot here. I skipped them last week. The fourth best team, I, I really have no idea. It could be a number of them. I'm going to go with Manchester United based on their six points, but if you've watched Manchester United, you know that it's hard to be too confident in them. Right now, end of the year, I would say based on their five-point lead right now and the really not that much of a difference in quality between the two teams, I've got City the one spot, Chelsea two, Manchester United three, and Arsenal four. Kartik, your top four right now and your top four at the end of the season. My top four right now are City one, Two, uh, two Leicester, three Swansea, four Manchester United with an asterisk because I think by this time tomorrow uh, it's going to be Liverpool. So that's Ooh. my top four uh, right now. Uh, then uh, top four at the end of the season as of now. I'm still going one Chelsea because I think they you – know, since I picked them in the preseason and we'll give it another week. <laughs> I don't want to change this soon. Uh, yeah, two uh, Manchester City. Three United, four Arsenal. Now I'm pushing, swapping Ar Arsenal and United, and uh, hopefully we'll see Arsenal improve and 
change that next week or, or the week after. Well, I'm very jealous of your idea of going with the asterisk because I agree with you on Liverpool. If we were doing this show on Monday night, I'd probably have them in my top four. Lawrence, your top four right now, your top four at the end of the season. Good question. Uh, of course, we're gonna, everyone's going to have to match up over Man City on this one. Uh, number two, I'll probably actually go Manchester United. Um, just because I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because um, I think that United... Uh, as much as we're talking about them not being a very stable uh, side in terms of the back line with no David De Gea, they've not conceded a goal in the first two matches. They managed to get one nils. Um, and for that reason, I, I'm actually quite enjoying it. And Adnan Yanazai, just a personal favourite. Um, the, the fact you can field him and then and then sort of say, well, he's not going to go on loan anymore. I think it's pretty fantastic. Um, number, you know what? I'm going to put Swansea up there because I think they, they, they merited uh, being there. I'm still enjoying Gary Monk every week saying that they always need a little bit more. Um, there's something about, yeah, we didn't do enough. Yeah, you're right, Gary, but you still do all right. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then this is where it gets tricky, isn't it? Because I like Kartik's asterisk. Uh, well, I'll, go, I'll go similar to Kartik. Yeah, go ahead and um, get and rid of the asterisk and put Liverpool in there. They're they're perfect through one sure. round. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. They're 100% so far, Richard. Uh, and the reason I put them there again uh, is... Yeah, it's just because I'm looking forward to seeing more and more of their, their new players combine. And the end of the season, who are, who are you thinking the top four will be based on what we know right now? What we know right now, I'm going to say, uh, and I like your mean idea, but I still think uh, City, Chelsea, United. No, City, Chelsea, Arsenal, United. Mm. Lawrence with the only person with Arsenal not in fourth place. Gentlemen, we have a couple of games that we haven't talked about at all. Let's quickly go through them because I think we want to spend some extra time on Southampton versus Everton. Let's start with Tottenham Stoke. Kartik, a very disappointing end to this one for the Spurs. Yeah, typical Spurs, unfortunately. I, I've written about Mauricio Pochettino being the manager to cure Spurs syndrome, which includes games like this where they, they're dominant, they're ascendant. They don't take all their chances, and they get caught out at the end. But it happened again to a Stoke team that we're calling Stoke Alona, uh, but they don't have Boyan yet. Uh, they don't have Shakiri yet. But uh, Stoke is only going to get better, we assume, and this is going to uh, this is two more drop points for Spurs. Very disappointing. And, and Lawrence, the other side of it, Stoke, uh, after their disappointing result against Liverpool, came back in this one, got two second-half goals, a little silver lining to a one-point start. Yeah, weirdly, actually, uh, looking at the way that Stoke were playing this week, how they didn't manage to unpick Liverpool, because you would say that the the areas that this Stoke team seemed to uh, be uh, focusing on would have been perfect to play against Liverpool. Maybe maybe Liverpool got away with something there. Um, I'm really enjoying the way that Mark Hughes is setting this team out, where the emphasis is and where the players get the ball into feet and then, then look to play into the striker. Basically, that kind of, if you, if you divide the pitch up into fifths, it's the, second fifth from the left and that i i think that's my favorite fifth of the pitch and it's basically looking at where it's been successful for other top sides and i and i really mean the top sides and sort of uh, i don't know puppeting that a little bit mimicking that a little bit further down mm-hmm. i'm really enjoying it i think it's fantastic uh, you know, it, it, the fact you can play such exciting players, Afalai in there bojan's not even seems to be part into the equation at the moment and then he's he's making ireland look like like some sort of ball player 
I mean, it's, it's brilliant. They're very simple instructions and in just the right area, it seems to be working. Yeah, great changes for Mark Hughes in the second half today. Maybe we'll talk about this next week because I'm the one huge skeptic about this Stokelona idea. We'll put that on the agenda for next week. But Lawrence, I'm going to stay with you, Swansea, that 2-0 victory over Newcastle. Adil Yanmot getting that early red card in this one, evoking memories of the memorable John Carver era at Newcastle. But Swansea now, four points, two impressive results. Who's it memorable for? Memorable for everybody, but some of those memories are nightmares. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, uh, nightmares will fade over time. Don't worry about that, Newcastle lads. Um, I'm still interested in, in the way that Gary Monk is constructing this side. Every week he says he believes he can get more out of them or that he was disappointed in some way with one or the other side. Um, I, I love the completely changing uh, and almost completely forgotten narrative to do with Baffertimi Gomez, who was so on to wait at one point from the club uh, that you couldn't take that that uh, phrase away from him in the papers. Um, and I think at this point, we're seeing the, effect in, the effectiveness of having a striker up there. Um, I was actually thinking Michu and the fact that that looked like such a significant loss just a few seasons ago is now almost unmissed by this side. Mm. Um, and it's it's really incredible to think uh, just a few seasons ago I was watching a very sort of average side start out and not particularly play well against a newly promoted Crystal Palace team and now we're looking at the players who once looked flat looking very inspired you know John Joe Shelby et al uh, moving forward and uh, playing passes which last season or, uh, no not last season maybe just the season before that didn't look possible to a player like him because he just didn't look as inspired. And Carr take another result uh, this week. At what point? At what point, point? Point does Steve McLaren call out a player like uh, Carver called out Williams? That's the question. Mm. Um, when he goes crazy. Kartik, another result this weekend that we've already touched upon, but Leicester certainly deserves a little more than just the few seconds we've given to them. Up 2-0, end up winning 2-1 at Upton Park. Very good three points on the road for, for Claudio Ranieri's team. Yeah, I think a theme we're seeing is, is the African Cup of Nations disrupting Premier League seasons. Mares comes back from uh, Algeria duty, African Cup of Nations last season. That really doesn't produce for Leicester. Started this season really well. Yaya Torre, same thing with Manchester City. We're seeing the, uh, 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 both IUs having an impact as they come into this league. They didn't either finish the year particularly strong in France last year after coming back from Cup of African Nations duty. Uh, so uh, I, I really like what we see from Leicester. They, uh, they look fluid. They're counterattacking. And the loss of Cambiasso hasn't impacted them yet. Yeah. Although when you get to the dog days of winter, I think not having that leadership in the dressing room is, is going to hurt them. Mm-hmm. They don't have another player like him. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Cup of Nations because one of the reasons I'm so high on Swansea, and everybody will pick up on this, I'm extremely high on Swansea this year, is the fact that a player that went to Asian Cup is not going to be going to Asian Cup this year. Ki Sung Young in midfield for them, a very good, uh, very steady holding player there. Uh, but one game that we have said that we wanted to dive in on, Southampton, I think, most people are going to look at the results this weekend. See a 3 nothing loss at home to Everton. And not only be surprised because Everton hasn't looked good for a while now, but a team that had the second best defensive record in the league last year, Kartik, not only gave up three goals in a game, has given up five goals in two. And all of the fears of regressing now look even sharpened after a very disappointing home result. Right, and all, all the European games that they're going to have to play this season. Uh, Graziano Pella uh, got off to a good start scoring in uh, uh, consecutive European games, but now defensively they look uh, they look vulnerable. And they didn't. And this is without Schneiderlin, who hasn't exactly stood out for Manchester United at this point. But the loss of Schneiderlin seems to have opened the door. Uh, we haven't seen 
uh, the kind of impact from Classy that that, that uh, we thought we might uh, in, in this young season. And I, I think you're looking at a team that is not very deep. They weren't very deep last year. They've got European commitments now. And there's there's got to be concern. They didn't have results like this last season. They didn't lose 3-0 to anybody, particularly at St. Mary's. Uh, and generally, when they were losing games, they were looking the better side, even against the likes of Chelsea and Manchester City and Arsenal last season. So um, it, it, it's uh, it's a very disappointing game, uh, this one. They should have probably taken all three points at St. Mar- at, uh, at uh, St. James Park. They didn't. Uh, this game, they they uh, got caught out on the counter, which was really surprising. We haven't seen much of that. So uh, some early warning signs for Southampton. Uh, ultimately, they have too much quality to be sucked into a relegation fight. But uh, you never know. Maybe they're going to slip to mid-table mediocrity this season. You mentioned the loss of Schneiderland. They've also lost Alderweireld, who went to Tottenham after his loan didn't turn into a permanent move. And then the year before that, they lost Dayan Lovren to uh, Liverpool. And that's three key par- uh, parts of a defense, that triangle in front of a goalkeeper. And maybe this season, the loss has finally caught up with them. But Lawrence, maybe there is a danger here of inferring too much from one result this was a big theme for us last year on this sh- uh, last week on the show but it yes, does last year yes last year we were the- great last year <laughs> mm. uh, but it does make it a little bit more difficult to get a reading not only on Southampton but given the change in performance for Everton these teams that are in the middle of the table it becomes a little bit difficult to sort them out right now no, you make a great point, Nick. Uh, sorry. Um, I think the the point there would be uh, that it's difficult to uh, uh, grade a middle class when the, the judgment of the, the middle class has always been uh, actually quite easy because there's been a lot more between them. Also, there's been, uh, the more we see this web philosophy banded around within the game, the more that it seems to become the focus. And I wonder how much of it is actually the focus and how much of it is just us waving our hands and shouting with philosophy. Um, but, I mean, do, do you see what I mean by that? The, the more that we see Stoke with their philosophy, Southampton with their philosophy, uh, Everton with their philosophy, um, and the, the middle class, Swansea with their philosophy, the harder it becomes to grade them because their style of football, uh, when it comes up against each other, will play out in such a way. I mean, I'm going to be fascinated to see the Swansea-Everton game this season. I'm going to be fascinated to see the Swansea-Southampton game this season. Yeah, Kartik, I think what Lawrence is saying, or at least this is, I'm sure Lawrence knows what he's saying, but what my ears... Please do interpret. (laughs) What my ears let through to my spongy little brain is that there are a lot of teams that allow you to pick out something positive about them. Sometimes it's philosophy, sometimes it's the moves that they've made in the summer. And depending on where your biases lie, you can pick out any of those teams and make an argument that they are the team that's going to finish seven or eight. And as a result, we end up having five to six teams that have this real positive outlook for the season. Whereas back in the days when there was just a top four, it was always just Aston Villa and Everton. Right. That's a very good point. And we talked about Stoke earlier, and a lot of us have fallen in love with Stoke. I picked them seventh. I'll make that on. You, you can find my picks on at, at another website at another publication. I picked them seventh this season and, and cited. And this was before they signed Shakiri, citing all the Barcelona players. Uh, a guy like uh, uh, Diouf, who, who was a really good player, Bundesliga player, was a player that Sir Alex at one point thought might feature for Manchester United. Um, but right, that's my bias. You could very easily make a case Stoke finishes twelfth, just as easily. So. I think we all have fallen into that. So there are narratives about Everton. There are narratives about Southampton. There are narratives 
about Swansea and then Stoke. I think those four teams, especially, there are narratives that they could finish seventh. So, Lawrence, how do we sort through this? Or or do we even bother sorting through this? Maybe at this point of the season, we just need to step back and say, we all have favorites, but we all have biases. And let's just talk about this in November. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's probably isn't it? Is that, um, do, A, do we even need to grade them? Uh, but B, do, do we, because, you know, until you've played 10 games, et cetera, et cetera, well done, Robbie Savage. <laughs> um, the, the, but what we actually need to do is 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 avoid then saying, these guys are going to do this. These guys are going to do that and actually look and appreciate what those sides have done very well. Um, and, and I would say that's why maybe I picked up Pella this weekend because I still appreciated what Southampton might have done against Everton. And that's why I was saying, if you end up testing those sides, how well they stand up then, because it's all well and good us talking about the philosophy and the very tangible things, but it's the intangibles that these sides um, sometimes rely on, especially when it comes down to philosophy, which is not necessarily a tangible, uh, even if it does play out in such a tangible way. So when it comes down to Everton, uh, you know, are they going to be able to make that work? I, I doubt it, but uh, are they going to be able to make get the best out of Barkley and Lukaku this season? It certainly looks that way against the likes of Southampton. But how do we judge that? How do we how do we say you know how do we know the way that Barkley and uh, Barkley and Lukaku are going to get play against say a Tottenham or a Manchester United or anyone like that? Well, you know do- this Lukaku Lukaku discussion is fascinating because uh, look he got sold for an inflated price by Chelsea. Costa did very well that first season. Mourinho is very short term in everything he does, as we've talked about. But long term, that's still a sale that could bite Chelsea because uh, if, if Costa goes off the boil, which he's prone to do, uh, this is a striker they would have had for the next five to seven years, and they've sold him, and he's at another Premier League club. And but that all that all is dictated about as to whether he would even fit in under how Mourinho likes to play. I think we saw this weekend. You get him on the counter. His speed and athleticism are great. You put him in a game where he has to be a person fighting alone against a defense and not in transition, or just played as an outlet man, or even in um, even a, a more established set where your team is holding the ball more in the final third. Is he as effective? I think maybe Everton fans, after watching last season, might um, have a counterpoint on that. But he He's yeah, he's twenty yeah. he's twenty two years old, so he's got time to mature into something else. Um, about speaking of something else, unfortunately, we are out of time and we have to go do something else. But there's plenty of action midweek, and next week's games are very enticing. Midweek, Manchester United is getting their Champions League qualifying campaign started against Belgium's Club Bruges, and then as Kartik alluded on Thursday in Europa League. Southampton is playing Danish club Midtjylland. Big games next week. Manchester City goes to Goodison Park to visit revitalized Everton. Manchester United hosts Newcastle. West Brom hosts Chelsea. Leicester faces Tottenham. And then Monday's game, which we will talk about on next week's show, Arsenal versus Liverpool. But that is next Sunday's show. We'll be in your World Soccer Talk iTunes feed. But until then, for Lawrence McKenna, Kartik. KKFLA 737. Enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is produced by Christopher Harris and Richard Farley and is a production of WorldSoccerTalk.com. For more information on the show, check us out at WorldSoccerTalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at WorldSoccerTalk or follow the show's hosts. Lawrence McKenna is at LawsCast. Kartik Krishnar is at KKFLA737. And I'm at Richard Farley.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.